0: Joseph N. Sandberg is an entrepreneur and investor who has devoted his career to helping create businesses that do more than just make money, they also make a difference. He is the co-founder of Aspiration, a socially conscious financial services firm that puts you and your conscience first, allowing customers to manage their banking and investing with confidence that the company's Aspiration works with are doing their part to transform the world. A founding investor in Blue Apron, Sandberg is also actively involved in a range of other startups including Ruminate, a STEM toy company targeted to girls, and Bright Funds, which helps consumers support the causes they care about. Sandberg serves as the chairman of the board of the Jefferson Awards Foundation and sits on the board of trustees of the University of California
1: Riverside School of Public Policy. The financial industry really came to a divorce with any sense of human values. That um, like so much in our society, it came to treat people like variables, that anything which could not be reduced to letters and numbers doesn't exist. And when you think that people are just numbers, then what you do to those people doesn't matter. In this thought-provoking discussion, Joseph
0: shares his insights on tackling society's hardest problems by creating companies that deliver meaningful solutions available to everyone. And in so doing, Become market leaders. Please enjoy our conversation with Joseph Sandberg. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. So it would be great to start actually with your story. How did you get to where you are today?
1: Well, I grew up in a low-income household. Uh, I was raised by a single mom, uh, like so many in our generation. And, um, you know, I remember my mom always working so hard and being so stressed out um, about money. My dad was never around. Um, I've never really had a a conversation with him um, of any meaning. And um, But my mom worked so hard to make sure that my brother and I never felt like there was anything we couldn't do. And um, she also worked really hard to make sure that We never let our circumstance um, give us a sense of or an abdication of our responsibility to do good in the world. Um, She always raised us to look around for the opportunity to help others. Um, The first experience I had with that, actually, I remember it was about eight. And um, we would watch 2020 together. My mom loved the show. And um, we watched this 2020 special uh, about the the dictator of Romania, uh, Ceausescu it was in 1988. Um, And it was a special about how Ceausescu mistreated orphanages, terrible conditions. And um, as my mom later recounted the story, I was so upset about this that I wanted to write a letter to Ceausescu. And um, I did. I forgot about it until about two years ago when I started doing uh, more work in the public sector and she showed me a Xerox copy of the letter. And um, the letter read, Dear Dictator (laughs) Ceausescu, I used a colon to make it more serious. And um, it continued, my name is Joey Sandberg. I live in Orange County, California. I'm eight years old. And I think you're a real asshole (laughs) for how you treat orphans. And, um, you know, it's funny, but I think it's important. uh, It's an important reminder that when we see obscene injustice, we need to be angry about it. And um, that sense of energy, um, which my mom inspired in me, I think informed um, the path I took from there. By the time I was living for Harvard, the house um, that I had grew up, grown up in was foreclosed, and it was super tumultuous. Um, and when I was in, uh, an undergrad, I was really focused on social good and um, community organizing. I took a year off of college and worked on Al Gore's presidential campaign. Um, But when I was graduating, the responsibility of providing financial security to my mom um, drove me to um, the beginning part of my career um, in the financial industry. I remember um, going to the career services office and um, really frustrated that I couldn't pursue my passion, which was... um, you know, doing good in the world. And, um, they just looked for the highest paying job I could find and happened to be as an analyst in private equity at Blackstone. And I didn't know anything about accounting or anything about what private equity was or anything about investing. But I went down to the interview process and told them how working as a political organizer was transferable to doing, um, <laughs> leverage buyout transactions. And I think as much out of a sense of humor as anything else, um, you know, I was hired as an analyst and then, um, worked two years there and, and spent some time um, you know, at another financial firm. And then saw from um, close proximity what we all saw from a degree of distance, and that is the financial industry really came um, to a divorce with any sense of human values. That um, like so much in our society, it came to treat people like variables, that anything which could not be reduced to letters and numbers doesn't exist. And when you um, think that people are just numbers – then what you do to those people um, you know, doesn't matter. And I think that is, in essence, um, what we saw in the financial crisis. We saw absolute um, lack of any virtue and morality in how the financial industry um, administered its duty of care uh, in the economy. And so you know, I moved back to California and, and really was curious to see if that's the way capitalism worked Um, Or is there a different model where you can actually build businesses not with an obsession of maximizing each dollar of profit out of variables, but instead in service of solving really hard problems to make the world better? And actually that in service of solving hard problems, could you end up creating companies that end up being even more valuable? And so that's what I've been doing for the last uh, nine or so years, um, eight years. And in that time, and we'll dive into some of those examples, um, I've also seen this, that um, no matter how much you believe in the power of the private sector, there are things that you cannot accomplish in the private sector. Because um, there are some problems that can't be solved profitably. But that doesn't mean those problems aren't worth solving. Um, And so as we continue, I'll talk about some of the problems that I'm trying to address through philanthropy and through the public sector, problems that don't lend themselves to a for-profit solution, but yet are problems that, um, you know, we need to solve with great urgency.
2: There are a lot of people who want to be more involved. They want to really, you know, you wake up every day, you go to work, you want it to mean something, you really want to make a difference. And again, the theme of tonight is, so how how can business solve the hard problems? So maybe to help us start tackling that question, um, can you outline for us the way you see it? What are the biggest challenges in the world that you think need to be solved uh, where businesses can actually make a very big impact.
1: The the prerequisite to that question is asking, what kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of world do you want to contribute to creating? Um, And I think that we ought to have a world where everyone who works can meet their basic needs. Um, That our social contract Um, ought to be that if you play by the rules and you work hard, you are not of want for housing, healthcare, food, education, and transportation. And um, if you share that vision as, um, as I believe the future ought to be, then there are so many different kinds of businesses that feed up into creating that kind of future. Because there are a lot of things in the private sector that are creating a present where actually most people who are working don't have any semblance of financial security. That those of us in this audience are among a privileged few. That the issue isn't poverty in America, the issue that is that almost everyone who works doesn't live with financial security. Not low-income people, but almost everyone. Three out of four people couldn't weather a $700 surprise expense, right, who are working. Three out of four people are a broken wrist a couple of blown tires or a broken pipe away from financial crisis. Now, I don't think that's the society that we ought to have. And there are a lot of things in the private sector that are contributing to that kind of inequality of security. The financial industry, which works really well for a tiny number of people, but not for everyone else. The healthcare industry, which works really well for a tiny number of people, but not for everyone else the pharmaceutical industry, which works really well for a tiny number of people and not for everyone else. And the list goes on and on and on and on. So I think the great opportunity as entrepreneurs is how do you attack one of these industries that works really well for a small number of people, but for everyone else who needs the essential services that that industry provides is working really poorly for those people.
2: Your experience with aspiration, I think, is a great case study on how somebody would go about doing something like this. So can you share with us a little bit of how
1: Aspiration was born, what the concept is,
2: and why you think it's going to be so game-changing?
1: So Aspiration.com is an online banking and investing uh, firm uh, built for everyone. And the problem that Aspiration is trying to solve is this. For almost everyone, their relationship with their financial institution is the worse they do, the better the bank does which is why 92% of American consumers dislike their financial institution. And this creates a ton of problems for people because in a free market, if you don't get good financial services, then you can't realize your full human potential. You can't send your kids to college, you can't buy a home, you can't pay for healthcare, and the list goes on and on. And what's worse than just the restriction of financial opportunity to almost everyone um, in the current construct of the financial industry is Actually, the financial industry makes it really expensive to be middle income and low income, that um, there's a regressivity about the financial industry. If you're wealthy, there's all kinds of fees you don't pay. But as you move down the income ladder, the fees go up. You know, our tax code is progressive. It's, in, it's inspired by the notion that, um, you know, to whom um, more is given, more is expected, And the way our financial industry works is the opposite. The less you can afford a fee, the more fees you're charged. And that's why the financial industry and banks in particular are um, among the least liked things in the entire economy. In fact, more people distrust their financial institution than distrust their member of Congress. So if you want to solve what's really at the heart of the problem, which is that for most people, they're experiencing a relationship with their financial institution where the worse they do, the better their bank does. You need a new model, a new business model. And one of the great um, shortcomings of fintech, you know, financial technology, the whole field that's emerging around venture-backed companies trying to disrupt the, the banks and the investment houses is that it's all based on uh, what I think is basically an incorrect assessment of the core problem. The problem that almost everyone faces isn't that the app is not fast enough or the features aren't cool enough. The problem is the worse they do, the better their bank does. And so if you aren't solving that core problem, you're just nibbling around the edges. Recognizing that we want to solve that core problem, our approach at aspiration and our business model is called pay what's fair. Which means for our banking and our investment services, the only fees that we earn are from the voluntary fees that our customers choose to pay us. Literally, you can use our banking and our investing services for free and get the same treatment as if you pay us. And it creates a different kind of relationship where people know that we're winning only if they are so satisfied that they feel compelled to pay us voluntarily. And as a company, we create an incentive structure where our team has one obsession, to do so well by our customers that they will pay us even though they don't have to. And the result is almost everyone voluntarily chooses to pay. And it unlocks an engagement that's really unseen in the financial industry. Because here's the irony about the brokenness of the financial industry's relationship with almost everyone. It's failing people, and it's also failing financial institutions. For financial institutions, the 92% of people who don't trust them also have become wildly unprofitable customers because banks and people are stuck in this adversarial relationship where because people don't trust the bank, it's super expensive to acquire a new customer. Because people don't trust the bank, people wanna do as little with that bank as possible. And because people don't trust their bank, their churn rate is extremely high. And so, in the process of doing the right thing, creating a trust-based relationship with people, you also turn a relationship that's become adversarial into one where there's a virtuous feedback loop, where people so love you, they don't want to leave you, where people want to do everything with you. We have, you know, every day, one of our great challenges at Aspiration is that we have so many of our customers who are asking us for products that we don't yet have. And... Um, Whereas the banks have to spend an increasing amount to acquire new customers, the amount we have to spend to acquire new customers continues to decline and decline and decline. Um, That's how you create a sense of movement married to a business, dealing with an industry that's um, fallen short of its opportunity to serve the mass market.
2: Okay. So tell us, like, when you decide to come up with a business model that says, okay, actually, you don't need to pay fees. Feel free to pay if you want to. What's the deeper lesson there in terms of like, why do people resonate with that in your view? And why does it work?
1: Yeah. The pay what's fair model works because it's attached to the specific problem that we're trying to solve, which is that um, there's broken trust between financial companies and people. Um, so it's perfectly suited to that problem. Um, it's the ultimate trust-based model, right? Right. For other industries where the problems, the core problems are different, then the solution is different. But in this case, um, what we're trying to solve, what you have to solve if you really want to disrupt the financial industry, is you have to solve for the fact that almost everyone distrusts their financial institution. And that distrust, as I mentioned, um, leaves everyone in a bad place. It leaves individuals poorly served. And for the financial institutions themselves, you know, it leads them with, really bad cost structure um, for customers, almost all of whom become unprofitable. And then it's just a negative feedback loop that feeds on itself. That lack of um, viability in serving retail consumers means that the banks are incentivized to stuff retail consumers with more fees that aren't attached to value, which makes people hate their bank even more. And it's negative and negative and negative.
2: Okay. What is the biggest challenge with
1: running a mission-driven organization or for working for one Um, I think you have to have a thick skin for people who mock you. Um, You know, you're doing something that's outside of the conventional wisdom. Um, But I think about it really simply. If the retail component of the financial industry is disliked by 92% of consumers, then basically I want to be at a place that's the opposite of all of the incumbents. And initially when you go to that place, you're made fun of called crazy and nuts. But as a matter of analysis, if 92% of consumers don't like the present state of affairs, then don't you just basically want to be in the opposite place, right? Right. Absolutely.
2: And do you think there's a trend that you're seeing more and more around businesses actually almost needing to become more socially conscious and... Is that going to be a core competitive advantage that most businesses are going to go towards? Or do you think it's still going to be a more niche thing that there's only some set of businesses that are really caring about making a
1: positive impact? Or do you think it will become the norm? I think it will become the norm because millennials are passionate about the social conscience of a business. In fact, the number one driving factor that determines the businesses that millennials choose to patronize is the social conscience of the business. It's social values and a key part of there's two key parts of aspiration. I described one of them, which is our pay what's fair business model. The other key pillar is our products are socially conscious. Our banking account is fossil fuel free, private prison company free and gun company free. And there's a growing number of people who are awakening to the reality that your deposits at a bank funds that bank's activity. That's just a point of fact. So if you're passionate about reversing the effects of climate change, if you're passionate about changing the curve of criminalizing a whole generation of people of color, if you're passionate about stopping gun violence, then no, if your money is in most of the big banks, your money is being used to fund the construction of private prisons, to fund the construction of Doppel and Keystone, to fund gun companies. I think people in our generation are becoming more passionate about aligning everything we do with our values, right? We believe in living in integration of our values. We're also looking for things we can do in our daily lives. And so one of the reasons that aspiration is growing so fast is that so many people are moving to us because they don't want their deposits funding the construction of private prisons that unjustly incarcerate a whole generation of people of color. They don't want their deposits funding gun companies. They don't want their deposits funding fossil fuel companies. When we take it a step farther, um, obviously what I described is a screening of the negative, right? Get your money out of things that are doing bad in the world. Um, We also create features that help you do good in the world. We've built something called the aspiration impact measurement that um, scores how every merchant where you spend money treats people and the planet. So when you use your Aspiration debit card, let's say at Starbucks, in your Aspiration app, you see a people and a planet score for Starbucks. And then you also see the people and planet score for businesses in that same industry, so other coffee places. So you can proactively choose where to spend your money on a particular purchase with businesses that treat people the best and treat planet the best. Um, the, The problems we face today are deeply severe. I think they strike at the most existential questions of the kind of society that we have. And one of the reasons we've ended up in this place is because we failed to use one of our greatest tools as citizens. And that's the power we have as consumers. The power we have every day to direct our banking and our investing dollars to companies that share our values, or at least to places that don't violate them. The power we have every day as consumers with the choices we make about where we buy coffee and where we buy you know, medicine to support businesses that treat their workers right instead of marginalize them and who do their best to minimize their carbon footprint instead of being ignorant of it. And so um, I think particularly to millennials, to all of us, to a lot of Gen Xers as well, these are crucial questions that we want to influence the decisions that we make. But the missing link has been making it easy. And so one of the motivations of ours as Aspiration is the belief that if it were easy for people to align their banking, their investing, and their spending with their values, they would do it. And so our mission is to make it easy for you to bank, invest, and spend in accordance with your values. Okay, great. Um,
2: So the bigger lesson here, I guess, is you know, the more aligned you can be with the values of the customers you serve, the more that the business model is shaped around it. And then if you make it really, really easy for people to interact, then you essentially galvanize people to live more according to their values as well. Also,
1: Um, you have to stand for something. You can't be um, afraid of pissing people off. I'm sure there are people in this audience... um, you know, maybe not as many as there would be in other audiences, but I'm sure there are some in here who think, you know, well, this is just a bunch of preachy, you know, BS. I wanna be able to put my bank deposits wherever I want. I wanna fund gun companies and what's wrong with private prison companies. And to those people, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, but we're not for you. And I'm okay with our not being for everyone because I believe in these progressive values. Um, and in the spirit of gaining a comfort with not being for everyone, you inspire the passions and enthusiasm of a lot of people. And you know, I think to some degree, probably a lot of us can relate to growing up, you know, you're, you're taught to get everyone to like you, right? And to minimize the people who don't like you. But the secret is that's a terrible recipe for changing the world and disrupting industries. If you aren't ready for people to mock you, scorn you, and dislike you, then you are not ready to lead and change.
2: Okay. So... You've invested in many of the best startups of our time. Um, and you've also fundraised yourself for aspiration yeah. and helped other companies also fundraise. So specifically, if you're running a company or launching a company that has a social mission like this, where you might be open to cynicism and all of that kind of stuff, um, it's hard enough raising money in general. What are some you know particular pieces of advice you'd give to a company? That's raising money to not just, you know, provide a very lucrative return, but actually really make a big change. What makes it harder to fundraise when you're in that situation? And what are some like tips and, you know, advice that you can share with us to make it easier?
1: I think the key to fundraising, um, which is, I think, the key to a lot about mission driven business building and probably life in general is you just got to own who you are and be authentic about it. And you have to look at the fundraising process as um, a a dating game to find the right match. And that it's totally okay if you're not the right match. You know, think about it like dating. Like, you don't expect that the first date you go on, you're going to find your significant other or life partner, right? Um, And you 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 basically expect that in the course of dating, you're going to date lots of people where it's not going to be the right match. It's the same thing with fundraising, but it's especially so if you're a mission-driven company. Because... It's especially important that you find investors that resonate, that who, who, among whom your values resonate, who are bought into the mission, right? And so you should look at rejection in the course of fundraising as actually a great thing because it's the efficient process of finding out who is not actually bought into your vision. And you want to communicate your vision clearly and truthfully. Otherwise, you're going to end up with investors that are bought into something that's not real for you. Um, fundraising is a long process, just like dating and finding your significant other is a long process. Um, but it's a process that generates the best outcomes when you are true to who you are. So the best advice to fundraising is just go tell your story in the truest, most authentic way.
2: Okay. Um, w- one other kind of uh, issue I think we have in our society is that if you're doing something and you're known to be doing one thing, People expect that you can't possibly be good or relevant in, in another field. So if you know an entrepreneur also says, okay, you know, I'm also going to be a policy influencer, or vice versa, if an author says I'm going to be a business person, usually like a lot of people can be skeptical. And a big belief we have at Ivy is that it doesn't matter whether you're an artist, entrepreneur, scientist, academic you can actually be making an influence across all these different fields to really amplify your impact. So you've actually been living this extremely multidimensional life where you're building businesses, you're investing, uh, but you're also heavily involved in the policy and social impact world as well. So can you tell us like, how you approached how to allocate your time and how best to be involved, um, where many of us feel like way too busy to be doing just the one thing that we're supposed to be doing? How do you manage to kind of scale yourself to be involved in so many different things?
1: I think you can be involved in a lot of things if there is a coherence that binds all those things together, if all those things are natural outgrowths of your passion. Um, My passion, which is born of my personal experience growing up, um, my belief in what we should do um, with our lives, and, and frankly, just good, sound judgment is that we have to create a society where everyone who works, everyone who plays by the rules, lives with security. That nobody who works is unable to meet their basic needs. And um, right now we have a terrible crisis where most people can't meet their basic needs. It's a crisis that strikes it really our democracy, um, if we don't fix this, everything is on the table. The future of the republic, the future of democracy, all of the problems you see today, we can tie back to the fact that this country's economy is working for almost nobody well. And working extraordinarily historically well for a tiny number of people. Um, and so when I see that and given my passion for it, I move to do everything I possibly can, um, you know, without bounds to, to 24 hours in a day. It's what inspires aspiration. And it's also what's inspired me to realize that there is a lot we cannot do in the private sector. Aspiration serves a lot of people. It's built for everyone, but a lot of people don't even have $10 to open an aspiration banking account. And as I was faced with that reality, I started to, um, Think about what I can do to help all the people that we can't serve at Aspiration. So two and a half years ago, I, um, I, I got turned on to the reality that in California, we um, were one of the states without an earned income tax credit. Are you familiar with the earned income tax credit at all? So the earned income tax credit is a, literally a cash back credit for people who work but make low wages. So it couldn't be a more precise way of addressing one of the terrible realities of modern American life, and that's most people who are working aren't making enough to pay for their basic needs. Um, and so the Earned Income Tax credit's existed at the federal level for 35 years, and it's existed in 26 states for a long uh, portion of that time. But California, which is known to be very progressive, didn't have an earned income tax credit. And so um, rather than thinking about all the reasons why I didn't, um, I said, well, we need an earned income tax credit. And so I put together a team that lobbied the state to launch an earned income tax credit, which went into effect last year for the first time. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> But um, it was more complicated than that. To get the earned income tax credit, you have to file a tax return. And when the state launched the earned income tax credit, it didn't put up any outreach dollars. And its earned income tax credit at the onset was for people who make less than $14,500. So a lot of people who earn less than $14,500 don't owe any taxes and therefore don't file a tax return. And so the the credit was doomed to begin without any outreach funds. So again, I'm not thinking about... um, the challenge that I was about to tackle, I said, we just have to make the outreach work. So I started a a program called Cal EITC for me, which is a nonprofit. And um, we've raised and deployed about six and a half million dollars over the last two years to make sure that every low-income Californian who's eligible for the earned income tax credit knows about it and gets free tax preparation to claim it. And over that time, um, between the state earned income tax credit that we've gotten to low-income families and the federal earned income tax credit, because if you're eligible for the state, you're eligible for the federal as well. We've gotten about um, roughly $2 billion into the pockets of the 600,000 lowest income working families in California. To be really specific about it, these are families that are earning $12,000, $13,000, single moms, and um, they're getting two, $3,000 in EITC, life-changing amounts. But um, but the earned income tax credit in California has had a big bug that um, had to be fixed. Um, namely, self-employed freelancing income. You know, the kind of income you earn when you keep a house, garden, drive for a ride sharing company. That kind of freelancing income wasn't eligible for the earned income tax credit. Because the way the earned income tax credit works is it's a simple calculation of you make this much up to a certain level and you have this many kids, therefore you get this credit. Um, And in the last 15 years, all of California's income growth has come from freelancing self-employment income. It's the fastest growing income in California. Um, It's disproportionately earned by women and people of color, yet it wasn't eligible for the earned income tax credit. And I tried to get this fixed last year. Um, You know, I administered an influencer-oriented lobbying campaign last year to get California to expand the EITC to include self-reported freelancing income, and to get California to substantially raise the income eligibility threshold. Because at $14,500, can you imagine raising two kids as a single mom? Well, at 16,000, it's not that much easier and you you aren't getting the EITC at that level. So we waged this influencer-led lobbying campaign last year to get the ceiling raised and to get freelance income counted. And we totally failed struck out, didn't get any changes made. And um, I was it, was, it was absolutely the most frustrating, demoralizing setback I've experienced because in the first year of the program, I traveled around the state meeting low-income families. And um, you know, I met thousands of them throughout the course of tax season. Um, you know, they, they all tell me the same story that the earned income tax credit, more cash meant that they'd have more time with their family. So when we lost the expansion drive, I just, honestly, I was really down for a couple of weeks because I felt like I'd let everyone down, um, you know, because all these low-income people, they just, they don't have champion. You know, there's lobbyists for every interest, but there's no lobbyists for low-income and middle-income people. So after I dusted myself off, um, I reassessed and I realized that we needed to do something different. Instead of, um, our politicians hearing from influencers, they needed to hear from people themselves. So we went right back at it this year, and instead of doing an influencer-oriented lobbying campaign, we um, activated tens of thousands of low-income families that we served through tax season with EITC, and got them to be their own voices to their state senators and state reps. We had over 40,000 low-income Californians contacted their legislature to demand the expansion of EITC to include self-employment income and to increase the, um, the income ceiling. And uh, we got 100%. Uh, so um, we just won this about in June. So next year, um, an additional 1.1 million families will be eligible for earned income tax credit in California. In the first two years of the program, 600,000 people got it. In year three, 1.7 million people will get it. All self-reported income will be eligible, and the income ceiling will increase from 14500 or so to about $22,500. Um, and again, um, the original inspiration was an assessment of what you believe is wrong with the world, um, and then an analysis of how you get at that problem. And for me, it was um, a recognition that there's a lot you just can't do in the private sector. Don't let anyone tell you that we can solve all the world's problems just through the private sector. It's just not true. Because the private sector is suited to solve problems really well where there is a profitable solution. But just because there is not a profitable solution doesn't mean that a good society doesn't solve a problem. And, you know, with respect, I'd submit that one of the biggest reasons we're in the mess that we're in right now is that we've decided that problems that can't be solved profitably aren't worth solving as a society. And um, it's just not true. Um, And if you believe, as I do, that that's not true, I hope you'll be inspired to find ways outside of business to solve some of these really hard problems that affect so many that frankly strike at the underpinnings of democracy but can't be solved profitably.
2: Uh, on that note actually there's been a lot of buzz and speculation in California press based on your efforts with the e i t c and your unique background with business savvy and so forth that perhaps you should go and run for office uh what do you what do you say about that
1: um i'm not ready to make any news tonight <laughs> but uh but stay tuned okay awesome and uh
2: just out of curiosity um You know, if you were, let's say you had, uh, if you're president controlling both houses, you could pass any legislation that you you wanted to, Uh, what are the top three things you would do right away?
1: Well, remembering that I believe the biggest problem we face is that almost everyone who's working can't afford their basic needs and that we ought to have a society where everyone who works and plays by the rules lives with full financial security. Um, The things that I would do would be directed towards creating a country where everyone who works and plays by the rules lives with full financial security. First thing, single-payer. The biggest risk to people's financial security is healthcare costs. And um, to those who think it's too expensive, They haven't met the 270 million people who live every single day with a pain in their stomach knowing that one financial, one health crisis, they're in a financial ruin. It's just not how it's supposed to be in America, but that's how it is. And um, if you don't believe that everyone should have health care, then I think you need to really examine every single day that you are rendering 80% 80% of America to living with a daily sense of stress and worry, always looking over your shoulder. Um, people reduce this stuff to numbers in a budget, but I'll bet most people in this room at some time in your life haven't been able to pay a set of bills. I, I, literally, I want you to pause for a second on the times in your life when you have been a little bit over your skis financially, when there was a bill you couldn't pay or maybe bills you couldn't pay. How'd you feel? You didn't feel your best self, it physically affects you. Now imagine living like that every single day, 24 hours a day and imagine that a supermajority of the country lives like that, knowing with dread that one health crisis will put them into financial ruin. That's not the way that America is supposed to be. And so the first thing would be single payer. everyone deserves healthcare. Um, the second thing is everyone who works has to be able to afford their basic needs, which means, um, everyone who works should be earning wages that can provide them dignity and an ability to pay for their basic needs. And I think that, you know, what we've done on fight for 15 with the minimum wage is a start, but it should only be a start. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, You know, there's no human right to having a business. And when we make the argument about living wage, the first thing you hear from business people is, can't afford it. This is the way I think about it. I love basketball. I would love to be on the Lakers. I would love it such that we're 9 million NBA players because I think I'm one of the 9 million best players in America. But that's not how the NBA works. Similarly, wouldn't it be amazing if like you can just have a business and there were no costs, right? But the way it works in real life is your business ought to be good enough to provide a fair deal for your customers, a living wage for your workers, and profits for your shareholders. And if your business isn't good enough to provide a living wage for your workers and a fair deal for your customers, then You need to come up with a better business idea. And one of the root problems that's left so many people working in America with wages that are so far below their ability to pay for their basic needs is that we have accepted this failed construct that what comes first in a business are the shareholders. No matter what happens to the customers and to the workers, the workers and to the customers. And the way I think it ought to be is workers, customers, capitalists are partners in business. And, you know, to those who think that that's unrealistic and whatever verb and adjective you want to associate to it, you know, I would say that you have a really cynical and negative view about the entrepreneurial spirit and imagination of American industry. Because I bet what would be more likely to happen is if we set rules that said, Workers have a living wage, customers have a fair deal, it would inspire more competition to create better business models that actually deliver on that. So, um, you know, I would institute um, not a minimum wage, but a living wage. And the third thing I would do uh, would be I would make sure that our tax code um, rewards work and not wealth. It's no accident that we ended up at this present place with record inequality with most people who are working unable to meet their basic needs, but a small number profitably, uh, pro- you know, profited, profiting wildly. Um, it's the product of a tax code that treats investment income at this rate and earned income at this rate. And so we got to take a cleaver to the tax code and rebalance it so that work is treated the same as wealth. Right, so that if you earn a capital gain, you aren't taxed at less than half the rate than if you work at McDonald's. And you know, to those who make the abstract counter arguments, and I know it all double taxation, et cetera, et cetera, like that is just the result of thinking of human beings as numbers, and it's all budget items that are reduced to, to letters and what's in Microsoft Excel. Um, And I think where we've gone so very wrong in the last 35 years is whether it's the financial industry, politics, media, and so on. We've looked at human beings like variables in a spreadsheet instead of what is true. And that's each of us are really unique and each of us have value. And, you know, you look around, you ask, how did we get to this place? All this political unrest. And it's the result of the choices we've made. It's the result of policy choices that we've made and when people make these crazy predictions about the future and they describe the future as this um, scary place that's inevitable, it's only going to be the result of the choices that we make now. If we continue on this current path, all bets are off. Um, Every time inequality hits this level of severity, bad things happen. At least in my view, bad things are already starting to happen. But if we make different policy choices, then we can have a different kind of future. Um, But we're not going to make different kinds of policy choices if people like us in this room don't engage politics and public policy. You know, politics has been so muddied in reputation. Um, But the only hope is if people like us go into politics and engage the tough fight of making different kinds of choices.
2: Thank you, Joe. Let's give him a big round of applause. Thank you for the inspiration. All right. So we're going to open it up now to robust audience discussion. We'll try to do lots of quick fire questions and answers. So who wants to go first? Yes, right here. And there is a microphone, actually, so everybody can hear. You can also just introduce yourself. Um,
3: My name is Anish, and um, I just quit corporate America. So uh, I'm going into the social enterprise space. I'm really excited about it. I love what you're doing. Loved your talk. Um, Question about aspiration. um, Really ambitious. um, You know, there's no ATM fees. There's no uh, monthly fee. You're offering up to one percent APY on on um, on your on your checking account, um, and that's such a good deal. So, how do you, besides fundraising and beside external grants, like how do you hope to make this a sustainable business model so that like if something happens, if the economy crashes tomorrow, like we are, uh, as a member of your bank, I'm protected.
1: So the question is how Aspiration becomes a sustainable business. And you asked, what would happen if the economy crashed tomorrow? Would your bank deposits be secure? I want to address that second question first. Your banking deposits at Aspiration are FDIC-insured, so... The safety and soundness of your banking deposits with us up to the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit is a matter of the safety and soundness of the federal government, not aspiration. Um, which is a great leveling of the playing field, actually, as a new entrant into financial services. Because our bank account up to 250000 is just as safe as Bank of America's or Wells Fargo's or Pickett. The first, to understand why this works as a sustainable business, you have to understand how overwhelming the costs have become to banks of serving retail consumers and then how our model is taking those costs down. So our cost of customer acquisition is 90% less than the banks. Our churn rate is 90% less than the big banks. And our customers want to do all of their financial services with us instead of as little as possible, which is how people mostly feel towards the big financial institutions. And so when you take many hundreds of dollars off of customer acquisition when you turn an average lifetime of customer cash flow from two or three years into 30 years and when you turn a customer's orientation to you from i want to do as little as possible to can i please do all of my financial services with you It unlocks an extremely sustainable and compelling business model
2: thank you yep right over here
1: please Thank you.
2: Um, So I was just curious, so when new companies come into the market, it often invokes a very severe reaction from the incumbents, and particularly in your space, the incumbents are massive. And so over the course of Aspiration's lifetime, have you noticed uh, maybe significant shifts coming from these large competitive incumbents, and has that been part of your business model and hope is to try and not just change the way people interact with your company, but the way that the other companies are interacted with from other customers?
1: Well, um, I think the great victory for Aspiration would be that at some future point when we're all gone from the earth, people take for granted that the way you conduct financial services is the Aspiration way. That's the big victory. The financial industry is so large that um, you know any semblance of market share creates a really valuable company. Um, as far as the incumbents' reaction, I'll, I'll pose some questions for you. Um, to make your own conclusion. And um, I'll frame it kind of in the um, construct of advice for anyone who's trying to disrupt industries dominated by well-capitalized incumbents. Um, You need to go to a place where incumbents can't go. So if incumbents in an industry are infinitely capitalized, think very critically about how long disruption based on low cost will work. One of the things that's really intriguing about the financial technology industry is a lot of companies have been trying to disrupt based on low cost. It's curious because if low cost proves to be the best way to get any meaningful group of people, then wouldn't infinitely capitalized incumbents just give that service away indefinitely? Heck, they could pay you to use that service if that really was the factor on which you engage people. So whether it's in the financial industry or any other industry, as a disruptor, you need to take your business model to a place that will be very difficult for the incumbents to go. A place where maybe their own strengths would disable their ability to go, the innovator's dilemma, if you will. And so I'll leave it to you to think about how our pay what's fair business model, our integration of social conscience, and our new innovative features that really advances social conscience You know, is that a place the incumbents can go?
2: Thank you. Yep, over here, please.
3: Um, First of all, I commend you for bravely uh, stepping out of the comfort zone and starting in such an amazing company. Trying to grapple around, how do you make projections around people's willingness to pay you based on how they feel?
1: (laughs) Well. um, first question I've posed to you is, or are any of you, is when was the last time you went to a restaurant and you didn't tip? I won't make you raise your hand you went to that recently. <laughs> and, and then I'll, I'll go a step further and ask, even at a restaurant where you didn't think you were returning, when was the last time you didn't tip? Right. Well, then take it to the other extreme and imagine the provider of a service that is at the center of your financial life. For most people, the financial product that they need and engage every day is their banking account. Now, maybe there's some people in this room who are fortunate who, you know, trade stocks and all that stuff. That's good. But for most Americans, the main financial product they engage every single day is their banking account and their debit card. Not even the credit card for younger people. And if you're super delighted with the services you're getting from your bank, banking account, so delighted in a context where it's literally the opposite of what you've come to expect, right? It's almost a sense of relief. We get so many customers every day who call and say, oh, I've been waiting my whole life for a company like yours in the financial industry, right? So, this approach, the focus on conscience, the payments for a business model works extra well in the financial industry because it's the opposite of what people have come to expect. So, given those factors, um, I don't think actually it's surprising that almost everyone chooses to pay us for our banking and our investing services. With the passage of time, you have the longitude of history and circumstances to evaluate whether people change their behaviors and different kinds of outcomes. Um, And you know what I can tell you is that people pay a fair rate. Almost everyone pays. The amount that they pay in the investment services doesn't change when the markets go down. It doesn't change when the markets go up. In the banking account, people also pay a fair rate, almost everyone pays. But actually there are the fees that people have selected have increased as we've launched new features. Um, and you know, I think if you really unpack it, you know, I know there's the, always the immediate skepticism like, oh, who would pay? But when you're treated well as a human being, you treat well in return, right? It's back to my earlier point. We are not numbers and letters in Excel and Microsoft Word. There is something special and mysterious about being human that can't be reduced to those quantitative factors. Um, and when you understand that, then you understand why I Pay What's Fair works so well. Yeah. So for the banking account, you can um, tip monthly between zero and ten dollars a month. And in the investment service, you can pay between zero and two percent of your assets a year. and That's important because people need a sense of what is fair. It's important also because in the absence of those cues, people might not engage for fear of being the jerk who pays too little or the fool who pays too much. And then it's just a matter of fairness. We We don't want people paying too much.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Next question right here in the middle, please. Hi, my name is Anya, and I'm actually at a firm called Sustainalytics, so we do a lot of this research. Yeah. But one thing that I was really curious about is how do you actually determine and calculate that people and planet score that you provide
0: with the debits card?
1: Yeah. Uh, Sustainalytics is a great firm, so that's a good place to be spending your time. Um, we have a team of data scientists that have built the um, aspiration impact measurement over the course of two years. Um, For some of the inputs, we use third-party data. For a lot of the inputs, we use primary data. Um, The difficulty of constructing the people and planet scores are are different. The planet score is a little bit easier to construct because in the past years, more data has come out around uh, companies' carbon footprints, and there's more standards around that. The people uh, score is a little bit harder because there's less clear measurements, and that's where we've had to do more primary research. Uh, The Aspiration Impact Measurement covers the 5,000 largest consumer-facing businesses uh, that capture a majority of consumption, and over time, we'll extend it to other businesses. Thank you. Right here, please.
3: Hi there. Excuse me. My name is Em, and I'm wondering uh, how you've been able to identify your team both at Aspiration and then in the policy work that you've done, identify and, and aggregate and put everyone together.
1: Yeah. Well, one of, the, um, one of the, 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 the easier parts of a mission-driven company is that recruiting is easier. I don't know if you, you probably have found that also with Ivy. Um, because people are drawn to the higher calling of impact, not just profit. Um, and I think with the passage of every year, more people in the workforce want a job that is meaningful. That's more than just about making money. Um, and then on top of it, they see that actually there's a great alignment between mission and profit that the companies with a purpose um, are starting to become the companies that are actually the most valuable. So for Aspiration, it's, um, you know, really fortunate that people want to want to be part of solving this humongous problem. And this is an audacious task that we've undertaken to create a different kind of retail financial company that stands for something and that fixes the broken relationship. And, um, you know, as we put that in the world, a lot of people come to us and, and want to join the movement. Um, and similarly, in the policy and politics world, um, I think that when you speak truth, it—I um, think it—puts um, off some people, and it 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 draws out the enthusiasm and passions of other people. And so, in the political sphere um, and the policy sphere, as I've spoken about a reality that I think to anyone who pays attention is true, which is the economy is working for almost nobody well. And that almost everyone who is working can't afford their basic needs. Well, that makes some people who are beneficiaries of that economy uncomfortable. To a lot of other people, it really inspires them to action. And, um, you know, we were able to succeed on this um, you know, audacious advocacy for the earned income tax credit because we had so many people who wanted to work on it. Um, And again, I think it's all product of just saying what's true. I think truth is the most powerful disruptive force in business, politics, relationship across the board. I believe there's something inside of us that is drawn to truth. It's something about being human. And right now, it's also really scarce because so few people speak it. Yeah, please. Um,
3: so it sounds like you've been successful in having people come to you to start partnerships. So I guess my next question is, how do you market yourself so that people are finding out
1: about you, again, on both fronts the aspiration front and on the policy front? Well, I love social media. I'm on Twitter. Um, hope you'll follow me, at Joseph N. Sandberg. Uh, Facebook um, is a great forum also. I use Facebook a lot. Um, but I think on both media um It works just because I'm being authentic and saying what I believe and and speak it um, plainly and um, in ways that I think describes what people are experiencing in their daily lives. You know, um, platitudes are on the decline. Understandable truth is on the rise. And so when you hear leaders that are still stuck and talking about the abstract stuff, that sounds like, um, you know, out of some focus group of the 1990s, sell short that person's prospects, right? Because I think the leadership people um, need and want is leadership that is empathetic and connected to what they're experiencing in their life. Um, And what most people are experiencing are like the real problems, not stuff you talk about in political science or government at Harvard, but I can't pay my freaking bills. I am working three jobs and I can't pay my bills. I'm doing everything I was told to do. And I can't provide financial dignity for my family. Those are the basic problems that people are complaining about, rightfully so. And to the leaders who acknowledge and embrace the reality of that and speak of it in a way that is true to the experiences that people have in their daily lives, then there's great goodness that that can come. Um, But to those who are still stuck in the focus groups of the 1990s, um, I think that, you know, they're stuck in the past of politics. I think politics wants truth. And to those who bring it, there will be great opportunity.
2: Thank you. Uh, right here, please. Yeah.
3: I have a couple of questions. Uh, one, uh, one of them is about your third point about um, kind of wealth versus income. Right, I think that alludes to Piketty and his book *Capital* about the growth of of wealth versus income and what distortions that does bring us back to the Gilded Age. Do you think there's uh, opportunity? You know, we talked a lot about um, floors. Do you think there's opportunity for roofs of income or a uh, global wealth tax, like Piketty suggested? And the other one is, you know, your major point about. If somebody has a job and plays by the rules, they deserve a fair life. With AI and with automation and with all these things that are happening, or different government models such as China and state-owned enterprises, what happens if uh, if there are no jobs and or the people who own those corporations and the robots and the capital? Uh, you know, what is the future of you know those main points? of if, if there are no jobs.
1: And those are two um, serious questions. On the first, with regard to caps, almost everyone faces income caps. The likelihood that if you're earning $30,000, you're going to be able to move up to 70000 Or if you're earning $50,000, you are going to be able to move up to 90, whatever the case may be. It might not be a cap that's instituted by the government, but it's just as an effective cap that's the result of our industries becoming monopolized and controlled by a small number of companies that render most people into low-wage jobs with no benefits, a tax code that doesn't provide for the public good for the transportation necessary to get low and middle income people between their home and to jobs. And so this notion of income caps, yeah, there are income caps. They just aren't set by the government. They're set by the government's failure to enforce regulation and laws to ensure that our economy is competitive. And the biggest reason for the effective income gap, excuse me, income cap that most people face is that we have allowed our economy to become dominated by monopolies everywhere you look. And to anyone in this room who thinks um, opposing monopolies is some like, pick your adjective. You know who said that monopolies are the enemy of capitalism? Adam Smith. The number one problem, the beginning of the thread of the financial difficulty that people face today, the beginning of the thread of the problem statement that most people who are working can't afford their basic needs. The beginning of that thread is the monopolization of the economy. And you can think about the examples, but it's across every single sector. And the result is we have an economy in which we are subjects instead of partners and participants. You look, look at how companies treat their customers. They treat their customers like they have no choice. Because in point of fact, in many cases, they have no choice. And so when United drags a passenger off its airline, you're seeing monopoly. When Wells Fargo illegally opens millions of accounts, you're seeing monopoly. And the list goes on and on and on. And those monopolies take any balance of power away from almost everyone and concentrate in the hands of a small number of monopolists and investors who are smart enough to recognize that monopoly before it accumulated its concentrated power. So, I think the first thing we need to do as it relates to the question of caps, is we need to create an economy that has no effective income caps on people. Right now, we have income caps effectively on most people, and it's the result of an economy that's become rigged and controlled by a small number of monopolies. to your second question about the future, AI, work, etc., um, I won't pretend to be Elon Musk, but I will say this. The future is not inevitable. The future is the product of the choices that we make. Most importantly, the choices that we make collectively in public policy. And so to anyone who tells you the future is going to be this way, be very skeptical about their agenda i can paint a future that will have no jobs for you that would be the product of a set of policy choices i can also paint a future for you where everyone who works lives with full financial security and the associated policy choices that i think will create that but whatever the case the future is not of inevitable it's the it's the it's the product of the choices that we make now unfortunately including those of us in this room, we have become disengaged from those policy choices that we've all kind of consolidated back to our corners to build our businesses and make our money and enjoy our lives. And if we continue on like that, then the future is just gonna be a continuation of the present. The further consolidation of wealth and the power and, and power in the hands of a small number, a monopoly economy that leads to a monopoly government And the rendering of most people into, you know, a life where their best hope is having a little bit of universal basic income. That's not the kind of future I think we ought to have. There's a different set of policy choices that can drive a very different future. Um, But whatever the case, the future is going to be the result of decisions that we make, not some like, you know, inevitable force that's, you know, going to come upon us. The future is the product of the choices that we make. Thank
2: you, Joe. Thank you everybody for your great questions. Before we wrap up, yeah. I just want to get your like one final, uh, kind of piece of advice and encouragement for everyone here in the audience. Um, if they want to support your endeavors, get involved with what you're up to and then, uh, any calls to action that you might have for them.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, um, if you're interested, uh, go to my website, um, joesandberg.com or follow me on Twitter, um, at Joseph N Sandberg. And my advice is, um, You obviously know my view on these issues. um, But wherever you stand on any of these issues, engage the policy debate. Don't accept this notion of an inevitable future. um, And engage to see the future that you believe in. Um, Yeah, so that would be my call to action. Thank you so much for your inspiration. Thank
2: you, everybody, for coming.
1: That's our show for
0: this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, Visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.